Welcome to FaithCast, a podcast presented by Publishers Weekly. FaithCast is a series of interviews with some of today's top authors who write about spirituality and religion. I'm Lynn Garrett, Senior Religion Editor for Publishers Weekly. I'm talking today with Jared Brock about his new book, A Year of Living Prayerfully, How a Curious Traveler Met the Pope, Walked on Coals, Danced with Rabbis, and Revived His Prayer Life. The book is Brock's account of a journey around the world in search of a deeper practice of prayer. It was published in March by Tyndale House, which is the sponsor of today's FaithCast. Jared Brock is co-founder with his wife, Michelle, of Hope for the Sold, a charity that fights human trafficking. He's also the director of the documentary Red Light, Green Light. Brock has written for Esquire, The Huffington Post, and other publications. A Year of Living Prayerfully is his first book. Welcome, Jared. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for having me. There are lots of books on prayer, but you chose to do yours as a spiritual travelogue. Why did you take that approach? Yeah, I think it basically came out of my own spiritual journey. I had wanted to kind of shake up my prayer life, and so I'd done a lot of reading about how in the the Middle Ages people used to go on prayer pilgrimages around the world. So I took a year and uh, went 37,000 miles around the globe to explore a world of Judeo-Christian prayer traditions, including some of the weird uncles and crazy cousins. And each chapter has you in different geographical locations and immersed in a different religious culture. You begin and end in your native Ontario, Canada, then travel to Israel, Greece, Spain, Italy, France, Korea, and England, as well as various places in the U.S. Why did you choose those particular places? Well, I think the progression was actually kind of natural. We started um, with the Passover. Uh, we wanted to start with Judaism since, you know, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi after all. And one thing led to another. We went from Brooklyn celebrating Passover with ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews to Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, which is kind of already getting towards ancient faith, then we decided to check out Greek Orthodoxy, which is the oldest of the surviving Christian strands. And then it was basically from there, it was location-based, heading west back home. Um, You make serious points in the book, but you also use a lot of humor. Did you have any concerns that readers might be offended by humor about religion? Well, that's so interesting, Lynn, because I feel like most prayer books have been written for introverts, and they have flowers on their covers, and they're very, you know, nice and flowy, but we wanted to really create something that brought the joy of the Lord back into it. As I traveled around the world, I really, really came to understand that prayer is not about religion and ritual. It is about relationship. It's about having uh, a constant communion with Christ. And so, basically... I, I like laughing. I like having fun. And so many funny things came out of this this trip. If anything, my editor pared back on the humor. But I, I'm not worried. You know, if someone doesn't have a sense of humor, they're really not going to like this book anyways. But so far, people have been loving it. Um, not only have they been laughing, but they've also been growing in their prayer life, which is the whole point of this book. And it seems that one of the things that happened for you, too, is that you got rid of some of your stereotypical ideas about some of these faiths. Definitely. Um like even from the very beginnings, you know, we're in a rabbi's house with him and his disciples celebrating Passover. We didn't leave till after midnight, just like seven hours of eating, absolutely crazy. And I'm peppering them with questions. And I had kind of grown up in a tradition that maybe would have looked down on Judaism and, you know, seeing it as just religion, just, um, you know, they have 613 laws. And I thought that was kind of fundamentalist. But these laws, they call them mitzvahs, they're connections to God. They, they don't see these as laws. They see, them, see these things as opportunities to connect with God. And 
it was really cool to see that even within Judaism, there's a greater sense of relationship versus religion. So, yeah, I was constantly having my mind blown, especially when we got into kind of the weird chapter, the fringes, how you can really learn anything from anyone if you're open to uh, trying to understand. What do you think you specifically learned from some of those people who are, quote-unquote, on the fringes? Well, like, I mean, I spent two hours at Westboro Baptist Church in the founder's daughter's kitchen with her and her husband, who's an elder in the church. And, like, it's hard to even classify them as a church because they really are a, a hate cult. And But I wanted to go and basically say, you know, who do you pray to and what do you pray about? And it was a fascinating experience because they're so full of hatred and anger and I left this place so full of the same anger and hatred that fills the people at Westboro. I was like, how is there a group of people that can treat others with such such vitriolic disdain? And I remembered a quote by Dorothy Day, a Catholic missionary worker, who said, I love God as much as the person I love the least. And I felt really convicted about Westboro. And I just decided, you know what? Jesus was very clear about loving your enemies. I need to pray for the people at Westboro. And now when I think about them, I actually kind of get giddy for what God could do in their lives. Like if they discover grace and love, they could actually be a real church someday instead of a cult. So I'm very hopeful for places like Westboro, places like North Korea, places that traditionally we see as our enemy. But in actuality, we need to be praying that they would be reconciled into relationship with the rest of the world. I'll talk a little bit about your experience with North Korea. Yeah, Lynn, being in North Korea is like being on Mars. It is a completely foreign experience. Um, I flew into Pyongyang. My passport was confiscated. As soon as we landed, um, I was assigned a guard who was with me the entire time. What's really sad about North Korea is it's been rated the most hostile place on Earth for Christians 12 years in a row. And there's over 50,000 Christians in concentration camps in North Korea, in Nazi-style work gulags. And so I was there on the propaganda tour, five days of them telling us how evil America is and whatnot. And... Um, really, really broken for the plight of North Korea. You know, over a million citizens have starved to death in the last 30 years. Not only are they physically uh, in bondage, there's a spiritual bondage there. The entire country is built on this idea, this philosophy called the Juche idea. It's this idea of radical self-dependence. And what's happened is they've basically made themselves their own god. And what's the result has been that now they are basically completely dependent on the state for everything, for food, for clothing, for housing, for work. And it's interesting to see how it's flipped on its head. So, yeah, North Korea was was an incredible experience, but but very heartbreaking. What did you learn about Quakers that surprised you? Um, I really loved hanging out with Quakers. We, My wife and I actually visited the oldest church building in North America. It's a Quaker meeting house in Maryland. And their services are held in silence, um, 60 minutes of silence, the idea being uh, time in our busy lives of Facebook and work and soccer practice and Netflix to take some time to be in silence, to to be with God, to process the week, to reflect on what's ahead, and to really um, get equipped. And uh, it started, you know, the Quaker tradition was was beautiful at the beginning, but what's interesting is because their services are silent, very few Quakers are on the same page theologically. So I think they've got some work to do there, but I, I know it had great roots to start. And I love the abolitionist peacemaking uh, undertones and the simplicity. There's so much to love about Quakerism. Right. And that taps into your work as well. It does. Yeah. My wife and I run a charity to fight human trafficking. Uh, we actually 
the year before made a 10 country documentary on the issue and this whole prayer journey actually started in the red light district of amsterdam of all places tell us about your meeting with the pope yeah pope francis he's a nice guy we uh <laughs> um long story short we were in italy exploring catholicism we had visited assisi and monte cassino and we were going to go visit teze and a bunch of you know catholic type places avila in spain camino de santiago and um I had tried for many months to get an audience with the Pope, and it was not happening. And um, 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, there was a message on my Skype saying, come to the Doma Sancta Marta at noon tomorrow. So we were there by noon, and we got to spend about two minutes with the Pope, and I got to ask him one question about prayer, and he gave us rosaries. And uh, then we had lunch with his personal aide. The Pope was at the next table. And I uh, got to ask all about his prayer life. But one thing I really loved about meeting with the Pope, Lynn, was um, he twice asked me to pray for him. And I thought that was really beautiful because here's a guy who's the leader of a billion-person Christian faith, and yet he still realizes his immense need for a power higher than himself. I thought that was just that was really beautiful. And what question did you ask him? You're going to have to read the book. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to tell our listeners, I did read the book. (laughs) Yeah, that's, um, the question I asked was about prayer, of course. I said, what does prayer mean to you? And um, he had a very beautiful answer, um, which I'll let readers enjoy. Um, He also gave us rosaries, and they were stamped with his papal insignia. I really liked what he had picked as his motto. His motto is, lowly but chosen. Um, the Pope has the option to live in a, you know, a dozen-room palatial mansion, but he's chosen instead to live in a spare room of the guest house and eat all his meals in the cafeteria. So it's just nice to see someone who's actually trying to be Christ-like uh, in power, um, which I think is what we need to really pray for all our leaders, that they would try to do it selflessly as servants, which is, of course, what Jesus modeled with his leadership in life. Uh, would you say that any of the experiences you write about was more affecting than the others? Was there one that stuck with you more than the others? Well, like, I mean, I walked across a bed of hot coals at a guru convention, so <laughs> that was um, certainly, it left its mark on me for a while. I had um, blisters on my feet for a few months. But in regards to, to spiritual residue, I, I guess we could call it, um, we visited an ecumenical prayer community three hours east of Paris called Taizé. And uh, it's this prayer community, a dozen different languages, 30 denominations, 75-year age range amongst the monks that live there. And um, they practice a deep silence. Uh, we would pray before breakfast, before lunch, and after dinner. And each time a prayer started with eight minutes of silence. And it was so beautiful to enter this deep, reverent silence with thousands of other people. And they do that based on a quote by the founder, Brother Roger. He said, maintain inner silence in all things so as to dwell with Christ. Now, as Christians, we don't practice silence in the Buddhist sense of the word. We're not trying to achieve emptiness or nothingness. We're trying to create a place where we can hear the still, small voice of God. So it's not about asking for things. It's just about hanging out with Dad. And I thought that was just that's had a profound impact on my prayer life. If anything, after this year of living prayerfully, my prayer life is actually far more quiet. Because if you just talk the whole time, that's a speech or a monologue. I don't know if you're married, but in my marriage, that would not work out at all. And prayer is about relationship. And it's about um, having a dialogue, having a conversation. 
Aside from being a good read, what do you hope the book is going to achieve? Um, is there one primary principle or lesson from a year of living prayerfully uh, that you would want readers to get? My prayer for this book is that anyone um, who reads it would walk away wanting to pray more. I, I think it's there's a great quote that I end my book with, and it's I think it's by Tozer. He says, you can write a book about prayer, but you cannot put a, a prayer in a book. It is too sacred a thing to put on a page. And I love what Jesus says when the disciples say, um, Master, teach us to pray. What does he do? He starts praying. He starts praying the Lord's Prayer. Prayer, we can only learn it by praying. Um, there's really no other way to describe it. My hope is that, like me, who comes to the end of this year, knowing full well that I am in no way a prayer expert, that I'm like a first-year university student who now knows all the things he doesn't know, that we would see ourselves, that readers would see themselves as pilgrims on a long journey that leads to justice and peace and reconciliation in the world. Because as we spend time with Christ in prayer, we become more like him, and that changes the world. So that's my hope for this book, that people would just get closer to Jesus. What are you working on now? Are you working on another book? Well, like I mean, I've I've I have a strong commitment to writing. I love it. Um, I wrote my first novella when I was in the fourth grade. It was called Diamond Island, about smugglers who had smuggled diamonds in the back of robotic sharks. I'm quite certain it was a Hardy Boys <laughs> plagiarism, but uh, I write anywhere from two to six hours a day, uh, seven days a week. Um, I absolutely love it. I've written screenplays and novels and books. So yeah, I'm going to continue to write. Hopefully I can continue to publish as well. I'm I'm currently working on another book on prayer that uh, I think will be really exciting. But um, it's a joy and a pleasure and an honor. And we actually, my wife and I set up a second nonprofit that actually owns this, this book, A Year of Living Prayerfully. So all my author royalties are going to go to charity. And um, I just think that the ability to create art for a living is such a such an immense honor that I can't imagine getting paid to do it. So we're hoping that this book really does a double good in this world, that it convinces people to pray, but then also that we can give uh, a lot of money to people in need. So we're really hoping that people read it, get behind it, share it with their friends, because I'm passionate about it, and it's a it's a fun read. One last question. Do you still have the beard? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, most certainly. Much to my wife's chagrin, I'm looking more and more like a, a Mount Athos monk every day. <laughs> How many inches long is it now? Well, I have super curly hair, so I may be sporting a three or four incher at the moment, but uh, I have decades to continue my spiritual and beard growth. Great. Well, our time is ending, and thanks so much, Jared Brock, for talking with us today. My pleasure, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Jared Brock's new book, A Year of Living Prayerfully, How a Curious Traveler Met the Pope, Walked on Coals, Danced with Rabbis, and Revived His Prayer Life, is being published by Tyndale House in March. Tyndale House is the sponsor of today's FaithCast. I'm Lynn Garrett from Publishers Weekly. Thanks for listening. <laughs>